Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on this Friday, February 2nd. I'm your reader, Wally Helms. On the front page today, we have a large picture of a man filling potholes. And the story headline is Potholes. Thaw from winter storms brings latest scourge potholes. And it's reported by Marissa Payne. Iowa has been has seen a quick warm-up after winter storms last month, dumped heavy snow, and ushered in sub-zero temperatures, creating potholes on roads across the state as asphalt or concrete buckle under the changing weather conditions. When moisture gets into or underneath the pavement during freeze and thaw periods, it causes the asphalt or concrete to shift, buckle, or break, according to the Iowa Department of Transportation. Vehicles driving over the weekend areas can leave behind potholes. Iowa DOT maintenance forces, as well as city and county crews, are working to patch potholes with cold-mix asphalt. This typically is not a long-lasting solution, but helps cover the potholes until the weather warms up enough to place a more permanent patch in the spring. Permanent repairs use hot-mix asphalt or Portland cement concrete and work best when the temperatures stay above freezing in the spring and summer. In the spring and summer, <coughs> crews also patch roads with significant cracking or deteriorated pavement, which can eventually lead to potholes. According to the, the uh, AAA, a survey found the number of drivers who sustained vehicle damage from a pothole requiring a repair rose 57% from the previous year. In 2022, an estimated 44 million U.S. drivers had pothole repair bills, up from 28 million in 2021. On average, it cost $406 per repair. Cedar Rapids Assistant Public Works Director Mike Duffy said the city is using a lower-grade cold mix material that costs $97 per ton. Duffy said in the past the city has used higher-grade materials that cost about $125 a ton, but that's not currently available. The city has seen an increase in potholes since the winter storms, he said, but an exact number was unavailable. As of Wednesday morning, there were more than 40 active reported potholes shown on the city's MyCR reporting tool. Duffy said staff with the Public Works Department Streets Division are running three shifts to maintain local roads. We want to, we really want to make sure that we run our routes, Duffy said. It's the most effective way that we've found to identify and fix potholes. So much snow was piled up from the early January storms that crews most recently were focused on clearing storm intakes to allow water to be taken away. Crews' next focus is transitioning to point repair on potholes, he said. Crews like to make a permanent repair and not just a band-aid fix, he said. While crews use the cold asphalt product right now, they're taken, they've taken note of pothole locations to make permanent repairs when hot mix is available. Typically, he said, potholes affect roads later in the season after February. To have it at the end of January going into February is unusual, Duffy said. Thanks to Cedar Rapids paving for Progress Street Repairs, funded by the voter-approved 1% local option sales tax, Duffy said the city has 
seen a decrease in the number of potholes in the last few years. Past problems, <clears throat> past problem roads have been less of a challenge recently, such as O Avenue Northwest, which used to have frequent water main breaks and potholes. Crews also maintain roads during spring and summer, sealing cracks so it keeps the water from getting into those areas and contributes to fewer potholes, Duffy said. To report potholes on streets or county roadways, the Iowa DOT advises motorists to contact the local city administrator, engineer, or public works department or county engineer. In Cedar Rapids, citizens can report potholes using the MyCR reporting tool, available at cedarrapids.org slash Meyer, MyCR, or on the city's mobile CR app, or by emailing street at cedar.rapids. Let me try it again. At the, at the, the, the uh, email at street, uh, to street at, c, at cedar-rapids.org. The reporting app is handy, Duffy said, because when people report and give contact information, they'll be notified when staff complete a work order. Residents also can see where reports are coming in throughout the city. Iowa City's ICGov Express app allows city residents to report potholes. Choose streets under the list of topic areas, then pothole repair. The tool is available online at icgov.org slash residence slash report a concern. To report potholes on the interstates, Iowa numbered routes, and U.S. highways, contact the Iowa DOT's maintenance manager located nearest the problem roadway. Contact information is available at iowadot.gov slash districts slash district contacts. The AAA avoids, uh, offers tips to motorists on how to avoid damage from potholes. Scan the road ahead for potholes, and if able, drive around the ones in your path. Increase following distance to see potholes as they appear from under vehicles ahead of you. Avoid driving through standing water when possible, as it may disguise potholes. If you can't, drive through slowly and treat the road as if there may be hidden potholes. If you can't avoid a pothole, safely reduce your speed and avoid braking abruptly, particularly as you go over the pothole. That compresses your suspension and adds extra force to the tire. Hitting a pothole at higher speeds increases the chance of severe damage. Pay attention to any new or unusual noises <clears throat> or vibrations after hitting a pothole. Get a full vehicle inspection as soon as possible at a trusted repair facility. The article is accompanied by a close-up picture of a pothole uh, a pothole patching material, and let's see, there's another picture I saw of a car. It's a it's ground level shot across a pothole to a car passing by. Probably the car is engaged in hitting a pothole at the time. The photos are taken by Jim the Sociaric of the Gazette. At the bottom of the front page, we have a story <clears throat> reported by Vanessa Miller. 
UI won't take on Steinler orthopedic contracts in Mercy deal. As part of the University of Iowa's takeover of Mercy, Iowa City, which became official Wednesday and continued UI Healthcare's accelerating expansion statewide, it is assuming more than 1,000 of Mercy's contracts, <clears throat> requiring $3.4 million to cure amounts the amount the former community hospital owed under those agreements. Some of the larger cure costs attached to the Mercy contracts include $235,260 to Smith and Nephew, a London-based medical equipment manufacturer, $207,859 to Renovo Solutions, a California-based healthcare asset management provider, and $136,313 to Mid-American Energy Company. The $3.4 million in cure costs for 1,006 contracts is well below the $25.7 million that Mercy in September listed as cure costs for 1,404 potential assumed contracts it could pass on to any successful buyer in a bankruptcy auction for its assets. Notably absent from the shortened list of contracts is Mercy's agreement with electronic medical record provider Altera Digital Health, with which the university has agreed to enter a new temporary agreement and agreements with Iowa City-based Steinler Orthopedic Clinic, with which Mercy had a 70-year history of collaboration. The university has already determined that it will not seek assignment of the Steinler ex executory contracts, according to a motion Mercy filed last week with the bankruptcy court seeking approval to reject its ongoing agreements with Steinler. Quote, Mercy will not need the Steinler-related executory contracts identified in this motion following the closing date since Mercy's operations will effectively cease. Following the closing, the Steinler-related executory contracts that are not assumed and assigned to the university will only serve to potentially burden the Mercy estates, unquote. Mercy has asked Steinler to assert claims for, quote, rejection damages, unquote, by March 1st. Steinler was connected to 13 Mercy contracts in September, compelling Steinler in November to object to any of those contracts being assigned to the university which won the auction to buy Mercy for $28 million. Among Steinler's chief concerns were agreements tied to its development of an ambulatory surgery center in North Liberty, just west of where the university is building a 469,000-square-foot, $525.6 million orthopedics-heavy hospital near the intersection of Forever Green Road and Highway 965. UIHC broke ground in September 2021, and Steinler broke ground in July 2023, with both planning to open in 2025. Months before Steinler began building, it unveiled a new formal partnership with Mercy Iowa City to collaborate on developing the 36 acres of land Steinler owns in North Liberty. The partnership includes enhanced care 
coordination and shared management responsibility of the orthopedic service line at Mercy, Iowa City, plans to collaborate on a medical park in North Liberty and improved access to high-quality orthopedic care in eastern Iowa, according to a February 2022 news release on the collaboration. As part of the newest arrangement, Steinler included restrictions barring Mercy from assigning the agreement to any, quote, third party, unquote, without Steiner's consent. Quote, Steiner at one point had contemplated developing the North Liberty site with Mercy involved, and we put some agreements in place that didn't want those being turned over to anyone else, unquote. Steinler President and CEO Patrick McGallings told the Gazette, so we objected to that months ago. <coughs> Mercy, in asking to exclude the Steinler contracts from UI assignment last week, was giving us what we asked for, McGollins said. In the November court documents, Steinler officials spelled out in more detail its reasoning behind the UIHC-specific objection. Mercy should not be allowed to use the bankruptcy filing to attempt to dictate to Steinler that other entities may have an opportunity to interject themselves into Steinler's ambulatory surgical center's development and operation, according to the Steinler objection, referencing a previous UIHC offer to buy Mercy for a commitment of $605 million over 10 years. This is of particular importance because of, in June of 2022, Steinler was approached by Mercy and its representatives who provided Steinler with UIHC requirements and mitigating alternatives and stipulated that UIHC's offer to acquire Mercy would fail if Steinler would not alter the North Liberty Ambulatory Surgery Center agreements, including modifying the restrictive covenants in the North Liberty Ambulatory Surgery Agreements and agreeing to grant 51% ownership of Steinler's North Liberty ASC to UIHC. Although Steinler will continue to operate on the former Iowa City campus for the time being, McGollin said that by retaining complete control over its North Liberty development and land, Steinler can continue talking with potential collaborators about future projects on the site. We have 36 acres of land and 28 acres available for other health care related projects and we welcome all conversations, he said. The article is accompanied by a photograph of Patrick McGollins, the Steiner Orthopedic Clinic uh, director. And looking at page two, the Iowa Today page, Brittany Miller reports, February brings record, record temps. The first day of February brought Cedar Rapids record high temperatures, according to the National Weather Service Quad Cities Bureau. The city reached 55 degrees, trumping a 54-degree day on February 1st of 1911. The warmth follows a snowy and tepid January. Despite mid-month Arctic temperatures, average temperatures for January were at least one degree warmer than normal in several parts of eastern Iowa, including Cedar Rapids and Davenport. January temperatures in Dubuque were 2.5 degrees warmer than normal. Burlington and Iowa City were both slightly colder than normal, coming in at 0.9 degrees and 0.1 degrees cooler 
respectively. Precipitation totals were three-fourths of an inch to more than two inches above normal across eastern Iowa. In Cedar Rapids, they were 1.8 inches above average. In Davenport, they were 2.27 inches above average. With snowfall totals reaching 16 inches above normal, Dubuque and Moline experienced their second snowiest January on record. Iowa temperatures are likely to be above average in February. The eastern part of the state should see above average precipitation. That's reported by Brittany Miller, and she is the energy and environmental reporter for the Gazette and is a core member of the Report for America, a national service program that places journalists in local newsrooms to report on undercovered issues. There is a picture of uh, uh, sun dogs seen in January 14th on each side of the sun at Knoll Ridge Park in northeast Cedar Rapids. The optical illusions caused by the refraction of sunlight by eye crystals in the atmosphere, and it's reported and it's photographed by Jim Sociaric of the Gazette. And on the lower part of the Iowa Today page, we have a story by Marissa Payne. Lynn Compensation Board recommends 7% pay raises for elected officials. While Lynn County faces spending cuts as the impacts of tax reform upend its budget, the panel that recommends pay rates for certain elected officials last week suggested bumping salaries 7% across the board, higher than the 4% increases the Board of Supervisors plans to award. The Lynn County Compensation Board, which met January 22, makes its recommendation to the county supervisors who can okay the recommendations or decrease all of them by the same amount. The supervisors also can lower their own pay independent of the other elected officials' salaries. In their pitches for a raise in fiscal 2025, several elected officials shared struggles to attract and retain qualified talent and to compete with private sector pay, but most asked for more conservative raises than in the past, acknowledging the fiscal woes facing the county. Finance Director Don Jindrich told the board that county departments were advised to craft budgets assuming no growth, largely because of impacts of state legislative tax reform. As of January 22nd of that meeting, the uh, county was still exploring spending cuts that could be made. The supervisors had budgeted 3% raises for all officials. Supervisor Chair Kristen Running Marquardt said, but there are significant cuts that have to be made with that in the current budget proposal. The supervisors did not ask for a specific pay increase for themselves. The Board of Supervisors has some tough decisions to make for the entire Lynn County budget, running Marquardt said. Currently, the officials are paid salaries of supervisors, auditor, treasurer, recorder, $130,091, sheriff, $184,724, the county attorney, $209,538, Treasurer Brent Olson asked for a 10% increase for the treasurer's office, where four deputies' salaries are tied to his. 
given inflation, he said he believes this is equitable and responsible. Compensation Board member Brett Mason said, if we were to do that, it's going to cut into other operations of the county. Then County Sheriff Brian Gardner again hinged his pitch for a raise in part on the state's Back the Blue Law, which requires the Compensation Board be to recommend sheriffs be paid comparable to salaries of officers of the State Patrol, the Division of Criminal Investigation, and city police chiefs employed by cities of similar population to the county. In Gardner's case, his comparable figure is the Cedar Rapids police chief, assuming former Chief Wayne German's pay would have increased 3% if he hadn't retired, Gardner said he should be awarded a 5.04% bump in his salary to compete. Gardner, who has 11 deputy salaries tied to his pay and runs a $30 million law enforcement operation, suggested the board recommend a raise that's the same amount for all. County Attorney Nick Maybanks said the American Bar Association advises salaries should compete with private sector pay to attract and retain talent. When Maybanks took over in 2022, he said his law office saw an increase in felony crime and each felony attorney was averaging more than 200 cases per year. That load is now down to 170, still above the national average. Unfortunately, of some of the things that Supervisor Ronnie Marquardt talked about, the county is limited in their ability to be able to fund our positions, which we understand, Maybank said. But we've continued to work to meet our needs the best we can, and to get the job done beyond the call of duty, even though we've been drastically understaffed in this office. Maybanks asked for a 5.5% increase in line with the raise unionized assistant county attorneys have negotiated. Auditor Joel Miller said Iowa's county auditors are unique and should not be treated the same as the recorder, treasurer, and supervisors. Currently, three deputies' salaries are tied to his. In 2021, state lawmakers passed penalties for county auditors who break laws or administrative rules, including fines and possible referral to the Iowa Attorney General for investigation. Miller said the state-imposed penalties are the reason none of the deputies want to run for office to succeed him as auditor when he retires in January 2025. So far, only State Senator Todd Taylor, Democrat of Cedar Rapids, has launched a bid for his seat. Miller asked the panel for a pay bump between 5% and 10%, quote, to give these deputies a really good reason to stay when I depart in January 2025. Whoever comes in is going to need their expertise. They need an incentive to stay here and run the office, unquote. Recorder Carolyn Seibrecht asked for a 7.8% raise for herself and the three deputies whose salaries are tied to hers. I do understand that the budgeting for Lynn County is more difficult this year than it was last year, given some of the constraints for property taxes and rollbacks, Seidrecht said. In a public budget review session January 26, supervisors plan to approve raises below the Compensation Board's recommendation, but they will take a future vote solely on these recommendations at a later date. And now we turn to the Insight page for 
The Gazette's Editorial Gender Bill Defeat Brings Relief Republicans who run the Iowa legislature may have finally found a line they won't cross when it comes to denying rights to transgender Iowans. On Wednesday, a subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee declined to move ahead with a bill that would remove gender identity from the list of protected classes under the Iowa Civil Rights Code. The bill sought to add gender dysphoria to a list of disabilities accommodated by law. If such a bill became law, it would be the first time in U.S. history that a state had deleted a protected class previously approved. Gender identity was added to the code in 2007. We're relieved the bill was scrapped. Basically, the bill's sponsor, Representative Jeff Shipley, argued that being transgender is a mental illness. Transitioning to another gender is the equivalent of children playing make-believe. He also contended that transgender Iowans are the real bullies, silencing opponents of their civil rights protections. Transgender Iowans and their family members testified the bill would lead to discrimination against many members of their community. That's because not all transgender people suffer from gender dysphoria. Without that diagnosis, they could be denied jobs, housing, and access to public accommodations. Dysphoria often is worsened by a lack of acceptance and a wave of hostility often faced by transgender people. So the bill would actually make mental health problems worse. Haven't you taken enough? Hiawatha City Council Member Amy Wickdendall, who is transgender, asked the panel, Do you need another pound of flesh for the culture war altar? Reject the, uh, this abominable bill, bill. Reject it now, Wickdendall said. <clears throat> the ACLU argued, Yanking gender identity out of the code could be a discriminatory act in the eyes of the federal courts. Others argued it would be sending an unwelcoming signal to LGBTQ workers and young workers who value diversity. A non-binary high school student told the panel she is terrified of the bill's consequences and would not stay in Iowa if it passes. Two Republicans on the subcommittee, declined to sign off on the bill, along with Representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat Cedar Rapids. We as a legislature should not be taking away civil rights in our state, Sheets said. We agree. After a two-year assault on transgender rights, lawmakers' restraint was welcome, but it was long overdue. That was the Gazette's editorial. And we have a guest column by Dean Lerner, L-E-R-N-E-R. Dean Lerner is a former Iowa Assistant Attorney General, former Chief Deputy Secretary of State, and former Director of the Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals. Guest columnist Dean Lerner's column is titled, The True Story of Iowa Nursing Homes. In response to countless articles detailing unimaginable treatment, harms, and avoidable deaths in Iowa's nursing homes, the director of the Iowa agency responsible for oversight of these facilities, Larry Johnson, Jr., 
and consequently preventing these all-too-common occurrences, published his and his boss, Kim, Governor Kim Reynolds' defense in the Gazette on Sunday, contending that Iowa's nursing home challenges are being addressed. As the former director of that department, before Governor Terry Branstad and his successor Reynolds ordered a collaborative, consultative approach to the department's oversight, I beg to differ. The true story is the majority of Iowa's over 400 nursing homes are for-profit. It is impossible to know where hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars are going, and caregiving suffers horribly because of industry understaffing, turnover, and lack of training. Staff are poorly paid and scapegoated when inevitable tragedies happen, largely attributable to ownership's selfish financial interests. Private equity and out-of-state owners expect a healthy return on their investment. Before retiring from nearly 30 years of Iowa's service, I added several more surveyors to inspect these homes, and the acuity of residents is even more challenging today. Federal research shows many more surveyors are needed throughout the nation and in Iowa. Branstead immediately reversed my hires, pronouncing that our administration had a gotcha approach to regulation and that industry collaboration was his solution. Of course, news articles at that time exposed the industry's generous campaign contributions to Branstead and just recently revealed Reynolds and her Republican colleagues feeding at the industry trough. Nursing homes invest in campaigns, reap millions in taxpayer money, according to the Iowa Capital Dispatch. The inevitable result of, ner of industry's influence has been a failure in oversight and resulting harms. Republican elected officials are directly responsible. Industry's goals are twofold, more government money and less government oversight. It has achieved both, and nothing that Johnson says can undo the true story. Iowa's crisis in care is out of control, and his gratuitous, sincerest admiration and gratitude to caregivers should fall on deaf ears. What may we ask, what may we ask, has he done to help them, or to address the state's failing our vulnerable seniors? Finally, Despite all the accumulating, horrifying nursing home tragedies, Johnson, like Reynolds and the Republican legislative leadership, deliberately choose to blindly ignore Iowa's crisis in care. Senate Democrats made a simple request to hold Senate oversight hearings to discuss health, safety, and welfare solutions. The Republican response was nearly immediate. There's nothing to see here. Everything's just fine. Those familiar with caregiving in Iowa's nursing homes would likely advise others to consider this administration's neglect when they go next go to the polls. And that's the guest column by Dean Lerner, who is a former Iowa Assistant Attorney General, former Chief Deputy Secretary of State, and former Director of the Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on this Friday, February 2nd, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. First, our other notices from online. Don E. Duncan, 91, died Wednesday, January 31st, Jameson Schmidt's funeral home. Sumner, 
Barbara A. Hyman, H-Y-M-A-N, Barbara A. Hyman, 69, died Thursday, February 1st, Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home, Oline. Other deaths, Susan Reister O'Leary of Brainerd, Minnesota, and formerly of Dunlap, died Saturday, January 20, the Nelson Doran Funeral Home. Patricia Pat Ann Van Natta, 76, of Prairie Sheen, Wisconsin, died Monday, January 29, Thornburg Growl Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Marion, Wilburn Will Joseph Hollis, legendary Hawkeye football quarterback, Wilburn Will Joseph Hollis, 83, of Marion, passed away January 31st at Mercy Hospital, Cedar Rapids, with his wife and son at his side. Cedar Memorial is assisting the family with a private burial, and per Will's wishes, no public services will be held. Many of us will remember Wilburn Hollis as the coach for Forrest Ebyshevsky and the Hawkeyes, as, and Wilburn played quarterback from 1959 to 1961, led the Hawkeyes to a Big Ten championship as a junior in 1960, named second team All-American that season. Well, uh, memorial donations may be made to Camp Courageous in memory of Wilburn Will Joseph Hollis, and the uh, Cedar Memorial is assisting the family with arrangements. John Henry Leclerc of Manchester was 100 when he passed away on Wednesday, January 31st, at Good Neighbor Home in Manchester, private family for funeral service, 11.30 a.m. on Monday, February 5th, Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester, Iowa, the Reverend Nathan Lamb officiating, public visitation, 9 to 11.30 a.m. on Monday, February 5th, at the Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester, private family interment with military rights, Oakland Cemetery, Manchester, Iowa, online condolences may be sent to the Leonard Muller Funeral Home on behalf of John Henry Leclerc of Manchester. Betty Bernice Triplett Hamill of Cedar Rapids, 99, when she passed away peacefully at the gardens in Fairfax, Iowa, Sunday, January 28th. Private family burial and a celebration of life will be held this summer at Conrad Cemetery in Kalispell, Montana. The Bross Chapel and the Ava Center is in charge of local arrangements for Betty Bernice Triplett Hamill of Cedar Rapids. Online condolences may be made to the Brosh Chapel website. Virginia Homewood, Virginia T. Nee Wilhelm Homewood, 96, of Cedar Rapids, died peacefully in her sleep on January 23rd. Visitation at St. Ludmilla Catholic Church, Cedar Rapids, 9.30 to 10.30, a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd, followed by a Mass at 10.30. Luncheon will be held immediately afterwards at the Hotel at Kirkwood Center in Cedar Rapids. And uh, you may make memorial donations in Virginia's name to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and or to St. Lundmilla's Building Fund. That's for Virginia Homewood, Cedar Rapids. Dennis Michael Glover. Cape Coral, Florida, was uh, 
a couple of weeks shy of his 71st birthday when he died on January 29th in Cape Coral. A visitation will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home on Friday, February 9th from 4.30 to 7.30 p.m. The funeral service will be held at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories on Friday, February 10th at 1 p.m. with the certified celebrant Randy Walton officiating. The family suggests donations to Dennis's favorite charities, including the Salvation Army, Iowa Public Television, the University of Iowa, the Food Pantry of Lynn County, and Senior Friendship Centers in Fort Myers, Florida, and that would be for uh, Dennis Michael Glover of Cape Coral, Florida, Elise M. Armstrong, 80, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Tuesday, January 30, at Crestview Specialty Care in West Branch, Iowa. Funeral services 10.30 a.m. on Monday, February 5th, at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, Cedar Rapids, burial to follow at Oak Shade Cemetery, visitation 5 to 7 p.m. on Sunday, February 4th, at the funeral home. Those unable to attend are invited to watch the service via live spring, live stream. You might find that link on Elsie's tribute wall and the uh, website for her uh, her funeral uh, tributes and, and service will be stuartbaxter.com. That's for Elsie M. Armstrong of Cedar Rapids. John Beving, B-E-V-I-N-G, John S. Beving IV, 59 of Cedar Rapids, passed away due to complications of his heart surgery on January 25th at St. Luke's Unity Point Hospital. Family will have a celebration of life in July. In lieu of flowers, you can help the family by going to the GoFundMe website. That's for John Beving of Cedar Rapids. Madeline Tripkosh, I'm going to spell that, T-R-P-K-O-S-H, Madeline Tripkosh, she uh, died on uh, January 24th, and she was soon to be 95 years old. There are no further details at this time. We have Kirsten K. Shepard. She died at her home on Sunday, January 28th, the age of 66. Family has future plans to memorialize her life. In lieu of flowers, a family kindly requests that memorial contributions be made to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital Ocean Conservatory, People of Urban and Rural Education, or the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in honor of Kirsten's memory. It reflects her compassion and desire to make a positive impact on the lives of others, echoing the kindness she demonstrated throughout her own life. And that was for Kirsten K. Shepherd of Cedar Rapids. Teresa Ann Christensen, 59, of Anamosa, died after a long illness on Monday, January 29th, at Mercy Medical Center. Service 10 a.m. Monday, St. Wenceslaus Catholic Church by the Reverend Aaron Jungi, Burial St. Mount Calvary Cemetery. Friends may visit with the family from 3 to 5 p.m. Sunday at the Tehan Funeral Home for Teresa Ann Christensen of Anamosa. And finally, Mona Milhausen of Cedar Rapids. I'll spell the last name. It's M-Y-H-L-H-O-U-S-E-N. Mona Milhausen. 
was 88, and she died on January 31st. Services will be held at a later date. The uh, condolences may be directed to the family at iowacremation.com under obituaries. Memorial donations may be directed to the charity of your choice for Mona Milhausen of Cedar Rapids. And that concludes the list of obituaries in today's edition. Now we turn to the sports page for a story by K.J. Pilcher, Girls State Wrestling Tournament, a dominating debut for Utterback. Sigourney's Reina Utterback didn't compete in the inaugural uh, Girls State Wrestling Tournament for Iowa. Without a team at Sigourney and no sharing agreement, she was able to represent her school at the state tournament last season, becoming the second female medalist at the event with an 8th place finish at 106 pounds in Class 1A. Reina, R-E-A-N-A-H, Reina, is part of the school's first female team and made her impression felt immediately at this year's Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union's state tournament. Utterback opened with two pins and wrestled a total of 131 during the first session Thursday at Extreme Arena. I wanted to come out and open up since it was the state tournament, said Utterback, who is ranked 15th nationally at 115 pounds by Flow Wrestling. Just being out there and having fun, the main goal was just go out and wrestle. Get my stuff done. Utterback improved to 46 and nothing. She pinned Waterloo West's Cammy Glider in the first round and followed with a 52-second fall over Sergeant Bluff Lutton's Josie Lennon to reach the quarterfinals. Utterback has a consistent approach regardless of competition. It's just another tournament, Utterback said. We're going to compete. There's nothing different. It's just a big tournament. The Sigourney Junior was a two-time state qualifier and racked up 75 career victories. Utterback has throttled opponents the entire season. The competition may have changed, but she has challenged herself using an inner drive to improve her technique and dominate. This year I was trying to score as many points as I could and not giving up any points, Utterback said, just focusing on my technique and making myself better, even though it's not the competition I want. I'm still making myself better by pushing myself to get as many points as possible before I pin them. Interestingly, Utterback entered as the number three seed behind Sioux City's North's returning state finalist Molly Seck and Vinton Schillsberg's Ellie Wheats, who placed fifth last season. Did that add a chip to her shoulder? Not really, Utterback said. To me, it is what it is. I'm going to go out and wrestle. <clears throat> As the top three seeds at 115 advance, Benton community freshman Lena DeMoss thwarted the same <clears throat> from happening at 145, earning a bracket-busting win and biggest upset per seeds in the first session. DeMoss, seeded 15th, used a late takedown at, that led to overtime and took Ankeny's number two seed, 
Dana Cleveland to her back for a pin 16 seconds into the sudden victory. After the pin, an exhausted DeMoss rolled to her back in a moment of respite. She's just gutsy, Benton community coach Josh Hoke said. She keeps fighting every match. Sometimes it's a good thing. She doesn't get into who she's wrestling. She goes out and keeps going hard. Good things happen for her. West Liberty advanced three into the quarterfinals. The sister trio of Sylvia Dioni and Bricia Garcia Vasquez went 2 nothing in the first session. Sylvia and Dioni are making their second state appearance, while this Bricia is a freshman at 235. Sylvia, who placed third last season, is the number nine seed at 115. Bricia is the number 11 seed at 235. Both pinned both of their opponents in the opening sessions. Dioni, seated fourth at 140, started with a fall before beating Decora's Amelia Wadsworth 4-2. Cedar Rapids Kennedy, Cedar Rapids Prairie, and Linmar each pushed a wrestler into the quarterfinals. The Lions' Kate Seary moved a win from her second straight state medal. Siri recorded a pin in the first round and followed with a 16-3 major decision over Lacey Reed of Southern Tier. <clears throat> Prairie's top-seeded state champion, Mackenzie Childers, advanced to the quarterfinals with a pin and major decision. She was joined by Kennedy's third-seeded Ella, Ella Brown at 235 in the quarterfinals. Brown, now 30 and nothing, remained unbeaten with two first-period pins and is a win from her second straight medal, placing fifth in 2023. Kennedy and Lynn Marr had each qualifier log at at least one win in the first session. Decora <coughs> held the team lead with 51 points and five quarterfinalists. Top-ranked Naomi Simon, 170, posted two pins. She is on track for a second uh, state title to go with two Iowa wrestling coaches and officials association championships. East Buchanan was second, sitting three points back. The Buccaneers have six quarterfinalists going 13-1 and one through the first session. Destiny Crum at 130, Adeline Kabalka at 140, Taylor Stifle at 145, 190-pounder Brooklyn Graham, and Allison Crum at 235 all pinned their first two foes. There is a picture accompanying the article. Let me get to it here, and I'll read the caption. Benton Community's Layla DeMoss holds down NHTV's Kelly Thronson during the Iowa Girls State Wrestling Tournament Thursday at Extreme Arena in Coralville. The uh, photo was taken by Jeff Stelfox of the Gazette. And there's another picture, a color picture that is on the front page that says Sigourney's Reina Utterback wrestles Waterloo West's Sammy Glider in a 115-pound first-round match during the Girls' State Wrestling Tournament Thursday at Extreme Arena 
in Coralville. Savannah Blake of the Gazette is the photographer. And we have a boys' basketball story reported by Jeff Johnson. Number six, Kyoto's a small school that's winning big. 65, that's Kyoto High School's official enrollment number used by the Iowa High School Athletic Association for classification purposes in boys' basketball. That's small, really small. Kyoto ranks 328th out of 353 schools in the state that way. But small doesn't mean impossible to compete and succeed, as this program proves continually. A look at state statistical keeping website uh, gobound, gobound.com slash Iowa, and you discover Kyoto has had only two losing seasons since 20, 2006 and 2007, and those were still decent seasons of 10 and 12 and 11 and 12. The school has had nine seasons of 20-plus wins in that span, with a tenth highly likely on the way this season. Kyoto is 18 and nothing, with three regular season games remaining, ranked number six in Class 1A. I think it's just the little kids come to our games. They're excited. They come to basketball camp, said Kyoto coach Dan Stout, in his 24th season at the school. We've got awesome parents that take these little kids to tournaments. There are many basketball tournaments around now. We've got kids who see this, and it continues to feed. You don't want to be the person who plays on a team that isn't successful. You look at some of the top programs around, like North Lynn, it's the same thing up there. They just keep bringing those kids in, and it's neat and exciting. At a small school, it's tough because you go in cycles. Kyoto's varsity roster of 14 consists of nine seniors, four juniors, and a sophomore. Cole Kindred, Sawyer Stout, the coach's son, and Evan Vitito are seniors who have started since they were sophomores. Senior Tanner Waterhouse and junior Billy Kindred are the other starters. Kyoto regularly employs defensive pressure at the three-quarter or half-court marks, and can comfortably go with an eight- or nine-player rotation. Again, with the exception of Kindred and sophomore Chase Hayfley, that rotation is all seniors. What a luxury at the small school level. We've played so much basketball, have a senior-dominated group, said Sawyer Stout, who leads the Eagles in scoring at 21.3 points per game. Most of us, we came in playing our sophomore year. We were young. We kind of got beat up. We've put so much time in the gym. Me, I put up 500 shots every day. We have put so much time into this sport, and we're just glad to see what we're getting out of it right now. A lot of these guys have been integral parts of a Sigourney Kyoto football program that wins year in and year out. That success definitely has got to aid in other sports. Kyoto has made the state tournament twice winning the 1A championship in 1989 and qualifying in 2014. Its last unbeaten regular season was in 2011-2012. With a South Iowa Cedar League title already clinched and an overall league championship win one win away, the remaining goals for this group are obvious. 
I think the sky's the limit for this team, Sawyer Stout said. We're shooting for the moon, Coach Stout said. Our first goal was to win the east side of our conference, which we accomplished Tuesday night, beating Belle Plain. We now have a share of the overall conference championship. The next goal would be the state tournament. Like the kids have said, you get there, you might as well go and win it. The article is accompanied by a picture uh, of head coach Dan Stout speaking to his team as it prepares to take floor, the floor for the second half of its boys' basketball game Wednesday night at Iowa Valley. The photo is taken by Jeff Johnson of the Gazette. And we'll finish up with the community letter submitted on the Insight page by Robert Sessions of Iowa City. Republicans have hoodwinked Iowans. My fellow Iowans, we're being hoodwinked. Our governor and legislature are offering us a future with no income taxes. Already they have slashed the tax rate and want to change everyone, everyone charge everyone the same flat rate regardless of income. The justification for this dramatic move is that we have a large surplus and, I suppose, the worn Republican anti-government, anti-tax trope. They seem to have forgotten that, number one, the surplus is mainly due to federal dollars that stimulated the economy since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, money that Iowa has failed to spend on designated projects and needs. And number two, when the federal money is depleted, we will have fewer resources to fund needed social projects such as education, social services, road and infrastructure repair, etc. At the same time, these folks who want to get government off our backs and out of our pockets by eliminating needed taxes are equally hard at work dictating women's bodies, morality in schools, sing that national anthem, get rid of those nasty books, and overriding the U.S. Constitution's principle of separation of church and state by giving public money to private schools. Where has the Republican Party of my youth gone? I guess they've been hoodwinked too. That's the letter submitted by Robert Sessions of Iowa City. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on this Friday, February 2nd. I'm your reader, Wally Helms. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing, it really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.